Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. Thanksgiving and Christmas are big business in buggy land. In the past, my Amish neighbors, Abram and Bertha, raised turkeys, free range, no chemicals or hormones, hot items for Iowa City folk who like to drive down here to pick up their fresh birds the night before their holiday dinners. The Yutzies called all their grown children back to the farm to help with the processing the feather plucker, adapted from an old ringer washer machine, whirling, run by an air compressor. Welcome to the gizzard factory, Martha Yutzi hollered one morning from the processing room, dropping organ meats into large stainless steel buckets. A sign on the door read, do not enter. During Thanksgiving week, the turkeys are all plucked clean and secured in plastic bags, by the time the Wednesday evening rush rolls into the Yutzi farm. Yet many of their customers are perplexed about communications. How am I to place my order, they ask me. No phone, no internet? No, you can drop them a postcard, I replied. Or you can just tell me what you want and I'll walk over and tell them. There's only one thing dumber than a turkey the Amish have told me, and that's the person who raises them. In the past, I've raised a handful of the golden brown creatures in my coop, right along with my ducks and geese. The Yetzis always warned me against these kinds of mixed marriages, but I waved away their concern. Coop cohabitation is usually fine for about two weeks, with the chicks huddled under the heat lamp, their tiny beaks pecking the feed pan. The trouble starts when the birds have grown big enough to roam and I let them out to free range. First, they have trouble staying in the pasture. Instead, they like to free range right out into the road with the buggies and cars swerving around them. Then they like to huddle together on my front stoop a noisy greeting party for the mail carrier or delivery truck. Then they like to follow the ducks. Once sprung from the coop, 
that ducks head for the neighbor's pond, their small bodies squeezing through the fence. They launch themselves from the bank and swivel and swirl through the water with grace. They are born to float, their webbed feet propelling them across the cool farm pond. On the other hand, the turkeys are born for dry land, but they like to follow anything that strikes their fancy. And that means ducks. Several times the turkeys have run right after the ducks, jumping into the water, sinking toward the bottom of the pond, drowning. More than once I've had to dash over to the water's edge and fish out the turkeys with a butterfly net. Wet and bedraggled, I've tilted their heads to the side to drain the water from their lungs, just like I'd learned in my CPR course years ago. Once the turkeys reach adulthood, they are usually nice and round and plump. The picture of Plymouth Rock. But sometimes they're too big. So one year I cut my turkeys in half. A 20 pound turkey is way too much meat for one person, I reasoned, and deposited six halves in the freezer. Then I ended up inviting a couple of friends over for Thanksgiving dinner. And those two brought two more who brought two more. Eventually, I ended up with a party of 12. A few days before Thanksgiving, I rooted around in the freezer for meat to thaw. A half turkey certainly wouldn't be sufficient to feed my company, so I grabbed two halves. Thanksgiving morning, I woke early and made the stuffing. But when I was ready to put the bird in the oven, I realized you couldn't stuff half of a turkey and make it seem like Thanksgiving. What to do? I got out a darning needle and threaded it with dental floss and slowly with big, thick stitches sewed the turkey halves together. Then I tucked in the stuffing and when my guests arrived, I took out a golden brown turkey from the oven, a turkey so perfectly basted and roasted that from a distance, it looked like a Norman Rockwell painting. Up close with its stitches, it had a, well, Franken-turkey appearance. Politely, my guests oohed and odd over the meat. And when we sat down to the mashed potatoes and cranberries, the baked bean dishes and pumpkin pie, we all bowed our heads and picking pieces of floss from our teeth, gave thanks for the wholeness of our lives.
Well, welcome, Ruby, our resident gross mommy, to Mary Swander's buggy land. Uh, hello. So, Ruby, did you have a good Thanksgiving? Looking forward to Christmas? No. I can't say I am. No. Did you spend Thanksgiving with your family? Yes. That's the problem. How many of them had you at the dinner? Well, let's see. There were Merle's and Malin's and Melvin's and Marlin's and Marvin's and Moses. Ah, okay, I got the picture. Now, how many people is that? I'd have to count. Over a hundred, I'm sure. You cooked for a hundred people on Thanksgiving? Oh, yes. But the others brought dishes, you know. Oh, that sounds lovely. Well, it wasn't. Hmm. It doesn't sound like you're looking forward to Christmas, either. No, especially the dinner. No. But you're such a good cook. What on earth was the matter? Keto. That's what was the matter. Keto. You know, the young people are all keto, won't eat anything that tastes good at all. Amish people are on keto? Oh, yes. They won't eat this, and they won't eat that. They won't eat my sweet potatoes. How on earth did they find out about keto? And they won't even eat the marshmallows on top of the sweet potatoes. Did they read about it in the library? Strangest thing, though, they will eat my jello and whipped cream. Did they see it in the newspaper? They won't even eat my shoe fly pie. Imagine, they love my shoe fly pie. We all love your shoe fly pie, Ruby. Yes, shoe fly pie. My, oh my, I'm a crazy cat yelling at the moon. So bring me a fork, bring me a spoon, put the pudding in the wooden bowl, dinner's at noon. Right, 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 Ruby, we remember that. Where did a bunch of young Amish people learn about the keto diet, though? Oh, I don't know. Indiana, I suppose. Indiana? Well, you know, they're pretty far out in Indiana. All the country roads are black-topped. No gravel. Well, that must be nice. Not really. You can go anywhere really fast down those black-top roads. Go to town. New ideas. Oh, that's right. Indiana is like the Berkeley for the Amish. Well, wherever they got it, 
They got the idea that they can't eat my cooking. Well, I'm afraid to even ask, but what are you going to fix at Christmas? I have no idea. They sent me a keto cookbook. I thumb through it. It looks just awful. What do you mean? Well, they put everything in an air fryer, whatever that is. Something more to plug in. What on earth? If I'm going to fry chicken, I'm frying it right there in a cast iron pan. I'm not running an air fryer off the generator. No, 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 no. I would not recommend that. Might overheat and burn the whole house down. Well, stranger things have happened. Then they even put avocados in that air fryer. It sounds dreadful. And this is not the place for avocados. If you know what I mean, if you can find them, they cost a fortune. And when you cut them open, they're already brown and rotten inside. Well, what are the young people doing keto for anyway? Not to lose weight, I guess. They're already slim as can be. Ah, Ruby, it's just a fad. It will fade. <laughs> Not soon enough for me. Well, I suppose it won't fade by Christmas. Not a chance. Not a chance. You, you're not on keto. You come over and have a piece of my pie. Well, thank you, Ruby. I would love to. Shoe fly pie. My, oh my. Go to Indiana with your keto in your eye. And now we're going to hear from Jane Yoder Short. Jane is a Mennonite farmer and activist and writer, and she was in a memoir writing class that I taught online through the pandemic. The class started, it was supposed to be one weekend early on in 2020. And one weekend, just like the pandemic itself, stretched into three years of memoir writing. The students came from all over the United States, from Alaska to New Mexico to Austin, Texas, and all around Iowa. At the end, each of them had pretty much a memoir together, and many had completed books. Now, Jane's going to read, do a little reading here uh, from her memoir about her experience growing up eating great food and gardening. And Ruby would be very proud of Jane. I'm sure they're related somehow. And Ruby, I'm sure, would invite Jane over for Christmas dinner. My memoir is about how 
a quiet Mennonite farm girl turned into a peace and justice environmentalist feminist loudmouth and the many bumps along the way. So I grew up Mennonite, an experience of both surprising joy and angst. And I lived on a farm where soil was treasured. Mixed Midwest culture with Mennonite values and a love of land. And you get a bunch of interesting, thought-provoking stories, hopefully. And I'm going to read one uh, where I wrote about Dirk. And my apologies to Russ. He tried to get me to say soil and not dirt. But growing up, it was always dirt. I did change some of my dirts to soil. So this is a little about dirt. The garden was a quiet, safe place, far from the world's arguments and divisions. I walked by the orange marigolds with their deep, dirty red edges. They begged to be noticed. Their strong, arrogant, enchanting smell invaded the air. I entered my bean teepee castle. Dad had put up the eight long wooden poles in the spring. They created a five-foot circular space at the bottom and met at the top, creating a cone shape. We carefully wove baler twine between the poles. Mom and I planted the bean pole seeds, and impatiently I waited. Eventually, after a gentle shower, the seeds sprouted. Beanstalks now covered the entire cone shape reaching beyond the top of the poles. No need for a customary teepee canvas cover. Dad had planted two of the poles further apart. Between these poles, the baler twine and the vines started a couple of feet off the ground. This created a small secret entrance that I could crawl through. It kept most adults out. I sat down inside the teepee with my reddish collection. I could take them in and wash them. Instead, I gave them a quick wipe. Dad always said, a little dirt never hurt anyone. I bit into a sweet, sharp reddish. My tongue knew there was a little grit left on the root, but the strong reddish taste took over, filling my mouth with the zest of spring. Looking through the bean leaves to the west, I spied the house. I imagined the activities going on behind the windows. Mom was working in the kitchen. My sister was playing with dolls. To the distant east was the orchard where apples were forming, still too small and too tart to eat. Birds chattered on their branches, discussing who ruled each tree. I turned and looked south. The road was visible. I could watch the occasional car zoom to unknown secret locations. To the north, the chicken house was sending out secret messages, proclaiming each new egg laid, babbling on about the delight of a bug detected and broadcasting each argument. Dirt flew as the chickens intently scratched, hunting and hoping for a delicious worm. All around, subversive plants were growing, expanding, taking over the world, transforming the earth into a tangle of Sweet potato vines, a maze of tomato stalks, and a forest of sweet corn, a perfect green paradise. Expeditions to the driveway yielded valuable shiny stones to decorate my teepee floor. I'd fill my pockets with treasured jewels and a little dirt. I carefully arranged these jewels on the teepee's floor and it is designed to fit for a ruling queen. <laughs> 
I had bugs to catch, weeds to dissect, flowers to pick, and a bean teepee mansion to rule. Later in the summer, my teepee produced a steady supply of long green beans. I devour some, but they weren't my favorite. I prefer sneaking off to eat the sweet-tasting cherry tomatoes. Amish neighbors never rest until the corn and beans are harvested, and the last jar of sorghum is sealed and put on the shelf. In late fall, the Bontragers crank up their sorghum press and whistle themselves into business. Toot, toot. The sound of the whistle and the creak of the steel wagon wheel rims on the gravel road are my first clues of the season. Some wagons are pulled by draft horses the driver's reins snapping across their taut bodies. Other wagons are pulled by antique tractors, their rubberless rims rattling along, making their own music in a cacophony of bumps, scrapes, and moans. At this time of year, one by one, the cornfields surrender. The land, shaven clean, turned a golden brown. The last cutting of hay is pressed into squares or rolled up in large round bales. A few stubby corn stalks or stray ears of corn may be all that's visible to the driver of a car bombing down the road. But I have the pleasure of watching the sorghum harvest slowly unfold. One day, one wagon, then another, then another trundling along. Throughout late October and on into November, the wagons make a steady procession, the cane piled high, tiled down with long lengths of rope. Some stacks of cane are neat and tidy, others helter-skelter. Those Amish farmers who couldn't be bothered with rope throw their young boys spread eagle on top of the cane, all headed just a mile down the road toward the Bontrager's farm. There, the Bontragers press sorghum cane for the entire neighborhood, the juice filtered and then boiled down into a syrup. We're getting our sorghum ready now, the Yutzis told me a couple of weeks after Bertha's passing. They were cutting their cane, then stripping the leaves and removing the heads, the seeds fed to the chickens. We'd like to give you a gallon for all the errands you ran for us a few weeks ago. I gladly accepted this promised offer. This is how neighborliness works in buggy land. You help me out, I help you. I give you something for your trouble. You return the favor. Somehow it all evens out. I thought back to the old days when I first moved to this area. Then the sorghum press was inside a rickety old wooden shed leaning into the wind the roof covered with an odd assortment of shingles that looked like they may have been blown down the road from various houses in a tornado. A horse was hitched to the press, walking round and around a track, creating the power to crush the cane and separate out the green liquid. Pencil marks on the wall kept count of how many wagon loads of cane each family brought to the press and how many jugs of sorghum 
they would ultimately receive. The children were sent out to the hill with shovels and buckets to bring back the clay for the filtration. The boiling took place in another old shed with a wood-fed fire. All day, one of the Bontrager teenagers threw big chunks of wood into a huge metal barrel to keep the fire going. Once the sorghum was finished, poultry processing began. Large rinsing tubs held ice that cooled the birds that would be slipped into plastic bags, sealed with twist ties. The inspector wasn't too keen on this whole operation, so the Bontragers were allowed to process their own birds, but not the neighbors. Over the years, the sorghum press became more sophisticated. A generator replaced the horse. Propane eventually replaced the wood fire. And a refractometer was purchased to test the sweetness of the juice. The small instrument that looks like a cross between a thermometer and an otoscope is used to measure the sugar content of the sorghum as it's cooking. When the juice reaches the perfect temperature and sugar content, not too cool and green for fear of mold and not too hot for fear of scald, it is removed from the boiler and poured into sterilized glass jars. Dan, the Bontrager gross daddy, was okay with these modernizations, but he wouldn't let go of the sheds. They do fine, he said. We only use them a couple of weeks a year. They do just fine. Then one season, suddenly, my Amish neighbor Sadie appeared at my door. We're in a bit of an emergency, Sadie said. We're in the middle of making sorghum, and the refractometer has broken. I scurried over to the computer and tried to overnight air refractometer to their house. But alas, the one company who made the instrument couldn't get the thing to them in less than 10 days. I imagine this turn of event causing great stress. The Amish backed up on the road with their wagons filled with cane. Instead, Sadie took the delay more calmly than I had predicted. I'll go get Grandpa, she said. He can just dip his finger in the juice, taste it, and immediately know the sugar content. The refractometer arrived several weeks later, after all the sorghum cane had been pressed. Then Dan, with a lifetime of knowledge of every aspect of farming and rural life, sadly departed that winter to the great beyond. By spring, the old sheds were gone and a large white barn went up. The Bontrager farm straddles two counties, one with much stricter rules and regulations on chicken processing than the other. So the Bontragers use the north end of the barn in the strict county for church, weddings, and buggy storage, and the south end in the more laissez-faire county for the sorghum press and chicken processing. The inspector had now sanctioned both activities as businesses. A huge generator was placed outside, pumping power into the barn. The press has grown to three times its original size. Immaculately clean stainless steel and industrial tables and tubs now hold the green juice before it's filtered to remove impurities. The juice is boiled in another sleek stainless steel piece of equipment 
His gas flames kept at a constant temperature through adjustable valves. Through a door, the poultry processing room contains individual stations, from the restraining cones to the gutting, the plucking, washing, and cooling, and bagging. The plucking machine is a massive steel drum designed by the Bontragers themselves. The plucked feathers fall to the floor, sprayed down by a hose dropped down from the ceiling. Then one of the family members squeegees the feathers out through a slot in the side of the wall where they drop down to a compost bin. There they are mixed with goat droppings and eventually spread on the field. The operation generates no waste. And the whistle was saved from the old shed, letting off a little steam and a little more. It blows, then blows again. One night, I heard the whistle blow until 11 o'clock p.m. Toot, toot. The next morning, one of Bertha's daughters stood on my front step with a gallon jug of sorghum in her hands. I'm happy to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartintown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time.